0: by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray.
1: Father, it's such a powerful word that you've given us today to proclaim. And I'm fully convinced that there's not a person. In family Lord Lord others today bringing struggles into this room bringing distractions bringing many ways of being tempted to drift to drift away from such a great salvation help us to heed these warnings help us to see what a wonderful thing that you have done in Christ and help us to let it affect every part of our lives so that we do what we were created to do, to glorify you. And we find great joy in that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. can you be seated. It's a wonderful opportunity to, to share this message with you today. I do want to take a moment before I get into the text to echo what... Landon has said about, especially to students, uh, first of all, let me thank parents and families just for the opportunity of of helping to shepherd your students and to to pour into them. I've enjoyed so much, even just in this one year, getting to know them better, to to watch them grow, to hear about what God has ahead for them that they know, and to, to pray with them and seek direction about further defining that. So I'm thankful for that opportunity. And also, uh, we as Trace, but I want to tell you students, not just the ones who are graduating, but any student, we are always a phone call away. We want to share any burdens you have with you. And I say that to families too. We don't attempt to be the the primary spiritual shepherds of your students. We want to come alongside families who are, your primary shepherds of those students. So I just wanted to say that. Well, have you ever done let me ask you this, and I'm no hand raising because I don't want to create any Pharisees here today, but have you just think about this question. Have you ever done a fast? Have you ever fasted? Have you ever and why did you do that? Perhaps it was health-related, or perhaps it was more spiritual-related. A little more specifically, have you ever done what some people, have gotten popular in these days, something like a media fast, where you um, step away from social media, or even step away from television, step away from something for the purpose of focusing the time that you spend on that particular thing more on something that's that's more spiritual and more beneficial to you. More on your walk with Christ. Have you ever done that? And if you have, what kind of effect did that have on you? That, that's a question I would ask. Um, here's did, did it give you withdrawals? You know, <laughs> we fast from some things like Mountain Dew, and we have withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you if you withdraw from social media. If you just say, I'm going to stop that for a week, does it give you almost the shakes maybe even? Or does it give you peace? Does it give you more tranquility? Does does it make you say, I wish I had never gone to any social media? What, what, What kind of effect did that have? Some of both maybe. One of the results, especially of a social media fast, is really that it teaches us just how easily and to what degree we're distracted by temporary things and passing things of the world. We're distracted by likes on a profile page or or what everyone else thinks looks great and how they're letting us know that. Ever since Genesis 3, our race has been one that seems to be easily distracted and often distracted from obeying God. So after the writer... Here in Hebrews, it's introduced this argument that Jesus is better than the angels. He goes through that in chapter 1. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's going to go on later in the book of Hebrews to say that Jesus is better um, than the priest. He is the supreme high priest. After he's done those things in chapter 1, though, he warns us. He warns us, don't drift in the light of such a great salvation, in light of how God has spoken through Jesus of a great salvation, don't drift away from him. And There are many, many thoughts about salvation today, but there's one that's, that's really prevalent in our culture, and it's what the, the author Christian George calls moral therapeutic deism. And, and it goes something like this. Jesus died for my sins so that i could be saved from hell and so that i could have eternal life and therefore because of that this is what that means it means that jesus kind of he kind of operates like a uh like a moral compass right he kind of through his spirit he kind of lets me know when i'm going the wrong path and nudges me the other way that sounds okay Jesus is there also when, when I really have problems in my life, when I'm feeling down or when I need advice and I can go to Jesus and I can talk to him and he can tell me what I ought to do to make me happy. And Jesus is also, well, he is God. So when I get into things that, that maybe are too big a problems for me, maybe things that I can't handle that are just over my head, then I can go to, to Jesus and, and He can help me to know what to do and maybe He can deliver from me from those things. The problem with that view of salvation and with, with that view of, of, of who Jesus is and what He's done is this once we get past the point of Jesus dying on the cross for me, there are a whole lot of first person pronouns in, in the description of my salvation. I'm talking about I and I'm talking about me. I'm talking about what Jesus has done for me and what that means to me and how he can help me. That's not the salvation that's talked about here in the book of Hebrews. It's a great salvation. Um, Sometimes the sole reason that Jesus came, we see, is that that, that we don't have to die, is what it points to, and, and go to hell, but but that we can spend eternity in heaven. And that that perverts the gospel, and it really shrinks down the gospel. It makes it small. The truth is that that God is working out his plans primarily for his own glory. There's your primary reason. And that we, we who are in Christ, because of his working this out for his glory, by his mercy and his grace, we benefit from that. Not only by spending eternity with him, but also by reflecting on his glory as we live our lives and proclaiming his gospel, this great salvation, and proclaiming it now. So, the passage in a sentence is that when we truly consider the magnitude of what God has done in Christ by establishing a new covenant, and we consider our natural inclination to be distracted and to be entangled by the world, we must pursue Christ. Lest we drift away. So, what makes this salvation so great? What makes it so great? The first thing that we see in the in the text, beginning after that introduction in chapter two, is that God has spoken to us through his witnesses. Through his witnesses. The first witnesses he talks about is, is Jesus Christ Himself. Because Jesus not only fulfilled all the prophecies about himself, but He also declared himself to be the Messiah. He said, I am the one. John 4, verses 25 and 26. Jesus, speaking with the woman at the well, says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Matthew chapter f- 16, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is talking with his disciples about who men say that he is, that famous passage. And then he asked them, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father is in heaven, he com- who is in heaven, he confirms what Peter says, that he is the Christ. And then there's a, a second witness, those, those who, served, who heard him. The, right, the, the, the people who are hearing and reading what the author of Hebrews, the original hearers and the readers, when they hear this text, um, in all likelihood, these people had never seen Jesus. They had only heard people who had heard him. First-hand accounts. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Recently, I, I, I took some of the youth we, we met at, a, at, the, at one of the local theaters and watched a documentary called Fragments of Truth. And I thought that was something important to do for our youth because they hear people repeatedly stand in this place and talk about the truth of Scripture and how authoritative it is. But the research shows that the manuscripts that we have available for for the Bible and the truth and the the coherence in it are unbelievable. And so it's it's a trustworthy witness that has been passed down from people who have heard. I want you to notice the language right here. He says that that God bore witness at the at the next um, passage. Let me find my place. God also bore witness at the beginning of chapter four. God also bore witness by the signs and wonders, and various miracles. I'm sorry, verse four. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse four. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. That's an important thing. God bore witness. The language that he uses there. Truth is relative a lot in our culture today. People will say, well, what's truth for you may not be truth for me. But even in this culture, the the witness stand today has something of a kind of a healthy fear. Somebody gets on a witness stand, there's some degree that you know they're going to be telling the truth. And the reason is that their testimony is going to be examined. It's going to be put under a microscope. For the person on the witness stand, there's the, the threat of perjury. And God, this, the passage tells us here, tells us, tell us that God put himself on the witness stand. He could be discredited. God himself walks right into the courtroom when he sends his son Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And he validates that. He validates it by signs and wonders and miracles and the spiritual gifts he's given. And no one can discredit anything that he says or he does. His testimony is sure. We can count on that. Signs and wonders and miracles. If you look at signs and wonders and miracles all through the Gospels, they never pointed to themselves. They always pointed to the Messiah, to Jesus. They always pointed to him and his identity. And likewise, the gifts, the different gifts he's given. They point us to Christ. And one way they do this, one way they do this is that they build up the body. As we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're growing together in Christ by using the giftedness that he's given us, then we're growing more toward Christ. It's the body, it's the church. Secondly, God has spoken us through the incarnation, the coming of Christ, actually to be one of us, and his suffering and the death of Jesus. Jesus did what angels could not do. Have you ever thought about this, that there are certain things angels absolutely can't do, as majestic as they are? The writer spent a lot of time in Hebrews talking about how great angels are, but in comparison to that, how much greater Christ is. And there are some things even that we can experience that angels can't. But Jesus himself, he was a worthy sacrifice. He was a worthy sacrifice. No angel could have come and lived a a sinless, perfect life. Because no angel is from eternity to pass. No angel is the son of God. They're still created beings just as we are. He's a worthy sacrifice. Secondly, uh, two things that that Jesus experienced that angels never will: that they were separated from the Father, and Jesus experienced death. So God has spoken us through Jesus' incarnation and suffering and his death. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus calls us brothers. This is amazing. This text points out that Jesus calls us brothers. Flip me to chapter, Matthew chapter 28. I want you to look quickly. Most of the verses, I, I've kind of, we're not going to turn most places. I'm just going to read them to you. But I want you to see this Matthew chapter 28. This is after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the women have come to the tomb. And there's an angel there that has frightened the guards. Here's the angels again, doing mighty things. Uh, the, the Bible says that they fell over as if they were dead. And the angel says, don't, don't fear, don't fear, it's going to be okay. He's not here, he is risen, go and tell the disciples. So I want to pick up in verse 9, and behold, they're going, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." It's the first time first mention in the gospel where Jesus I and mean, he calls his followers disciples. But this is the first time that he calls them his brothers. And he can do that because he's accomplished everything to bring them into his family. And that's what he's done for us. Everything exists for Jesus and by Jesus. We've told this in this passage. And and he willingly suffered and died so that we would be his brothers, all in accordance with God's plan. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing when you ponder it. I don't know if you do this, guys probably not girls much but i mean we throw some slang words for brother around hey bro you know that kind of thing and it means some kind of relationship but but i want us to really soak this in today what jesus is saying is that we are his brothers in him his brothers and sisters in christ so we're his brothers Thirdly, God has delivered us from and destroyed both death and the devil. We see that in verses 14 through 18. Death. Jesus is both our our priest and our sacrifice. Again, he's going to talk in in more, in some of the the future chapters about how Jesus is our high priest and he's, he's fulfilled those duties more than any priest ever could, but Here's the thing that we want to remember today about his priestly role and his role as a sacrifice. All that was done in the Old Testament, every single sacrifice that was made pointed to Christ. Every single sacrifice was not sufficient to propitiate our sin. And yet, Jesus not only makes the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. He's both our priest and... And our, and our sacrifice. Secondly, Jesus knows the depth of your temptation. We see that at the end of the chapter. Have you ever thought about if you're like me, I'm just going to say it you can get in a certain situation and you can throw a pity party. You can say, There's a lot of temptation on me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody, nobody. But Jesus does. Jesus understands it. When we read the accounts of his being tempted at the inauguration of his ministry, but even more so than that, as Jesus prayed in the garden and asked the Father to take the cup from him, can you imagine the temptation to just walk away? Jesus experienced that temptation, and it's a temptation that you and I will never know the depths of. So this is something that should be very encouraging to us as we walk through life. This is a text that we should remember when times get tough. When you're tempted, when you're tempted to step away from service, when you're tempted tempted to uh, stop investing in your marriage because it's difficult, when you're tempted to not proclaim Christ in your workplace because it's just not a great environment for doing that, Remember the temptation that Christ went through. Anything that you could experience, he's gone deeper with it. He's gone deeper with that temptation. So, he's conquered death. He's conquered death. The thing about sin, death, uh, about sin, we see in Romans 6.23 is that the wages of sin is death. That, that's what we've earned through death. The wages of sin is death. Thank God for the last part of the verse, the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not a, it's not only the sin earned death, but uh, sin births death James 1 15 says then desire comes when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death one person has said death is what sin chooses what sin receives and what sin deserves and it's our sin we own it and Christ owned it when he took it on the cross The second thing about death is that Jesus conquers death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a strange thing. Death... in many ways, it seems like a natural part of life. It could it, because you you go to the seminary, cemetery and you look at the uh, you look at the dates on the tombstones and you see a lot of people have been born and a lot of people die. Right, so it's just a fact of life. It seems natural in that way, and yet it seems so unnatural. I mean, who in here would say, "Yeah, I like to think about death. I like to." If you do, please come find one of the elders after the service today. But we don't like to think about death because we weren't created as as being in part of God's image to die, and yet because of our sin, we do. (laughs) And so that's what makes salvation so great when we think about it is that, that even though we will experience, if Jesus doesn't come again, a physical death, we don't have to fear death. Because it's not permanent. And it's not a permanent separation from God. The writer also tells us that he's defeated the devil. In Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11, John writes, "And And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother's, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now, here's the the difficult part. This text tells us Satan has been defeated. He's going to be cast out permanently. But the difficult part of this In both of those things related to death and the devil, it's an already but not yet. Our sin and death and the Satan have been defeated, but we await God's consummation of his plan. We hear the accuser pointing at our utter failure. But when we do, we who are in Christ should, should listen to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who cannot destroy, who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. So, the one to fear is God. God holds the keys. And in light of what is done in the work of Jesus, in light of all of this that we see today, I want us to look back at the first of this passage. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Those terms, pay closer attention, drift away, they're they're often nautical terms. And paying closer attention is not some kind of passive action. Even used in a nautical sense, it's for a ship that sees the port that it's supposed to, and it's dedicated to get to that port. It's not taking his eyes off of it. It's driving for that poor. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that's the way we're to do, that's what we're to do with this gospel, with this salvation that we've heard. We're to drive into it. We're to press into it. It, It's kind of like this. This is the thing that we're tempted to do sometimes. Sometimes we're tempted to settle into what Christ has done for us and kind of hold a level line. When I came to Christ, I was about nine years old. And what I remember about that is that I had done some Bible drills. I really had. And I I knew a lot of verses, okay? And uh, I could quote a lot of those things. But they really had no meaning for me, other than maybe a little bit of moralism. And I remember the moment that I came to Christ, how God... my eyes to all of what that had meant. No matter how many verses I knew that had the word sin in them, it had not dawned on me that I was apart from Christ because of my sin. And so when I came to that realization, there was emotion that was a part of that. Emotion wasn't at the core of it. A faith was at the core of it. A faith that God gave me. But I felt like now I know. Now I get it. Now I understand the gospel. I get it. And it's as if my knowledge of salvation were complete in that moment. Well, it was complete in the sense that I knew what I needed to do. I needed to repent and give my, faith, give my life to Christ, trusting him in faith. And I did. But can you imagine referencing back to this moral therapeutic deism that that's kind of what it does it takes salvation and puts it in a box sets it over aside and pulls it out when you need it can you imagine that so the writer of hebrews is telling us don't do that don't say well i'm gonna go to church once a week and i'm gonna open my bible when somebody's saying it. open your bible and you know i've got my salvation Can I tell you, if you're doing that, you're attempting to live your Christian life in neutral, and there is no living the Christian life in neutral. If you're not growing toward Christ, you're drifting away from Him. That's the reality. He tells us pay closer attention. Following Christ is not something that can be done in neutral. Don't be so naive to assume that that you will not drift, or perhaps that you're not drifting now from Christ. Don't assume that. Let me give you an illustration. You probably don't know the name Crawford Toy. In 1859, he became a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a good seminary, despite what some people may tell you. And uh, he was among the brightest, perhaps the brightest of all the students. People like Boyce and Broadus, who founded that seminary, they had high things to say about Crawford Toy. And he went through seminary incredibly fast, maybe even faster than Averywell. But he, he, he even got to the point where he was a, a professor of the seminary. Now, part of that, becoming a professor, is that you've got to sign an abstract of principles. And one thing, among many things, that that abstract of principles says is that this is the Word of God. It's sufficient, it's inerrant, it's without fallibility. And Crawford Toy signed that abstract of principles. But even in that moment, even in that period of his life, he was beginning to drift. We didn't see it for several years later because a man of such high intelligence, he began to try to connect what was popular at that time, evolutionary thought, with Scripture to fit it into the Bible. I don't know how much you know about Darwinian evolution but if you're going to make that fit with the Bible you're going to end up with something that looks like the Thomas Jefferson edition of the Bible something that's that's been cut out a lot and that's what happened with Crawford Toy the most brilliant of not the most one of the most brilliant biblical scholars of his time and he drifted what that should tell us today is that None of us, none of us are beyond drifting. He ended up denying the inerrancy of Scripture. He ended up at at a later point in his life denying uh, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Don't drift. Press into the the salvation that he's done for us. Another common reference we might have today is, is, is Bart Ehrman. If your child brings home a book by Bart Ehrman, if your student does, you need to sit down and read it with them because Bart Ehrman has done the same thing. He has drifted, he denies the infallibility of Scripture. And this is a brilliant person. What I'm more concerned about today, though, than the Bart Ehrmans and the Crawford Toys are the people who at one time were sitting beside you and I, either in this fellowship of believers. Or in another fellowship of believers, and who are no longer there because they stopped pressing into Christ. They drifted away. And the things of God, salvation is no longer important to them. Such a stern warning that we get from this because he says, after that, there's no escape for those who ignore Jesus. Here's the picture of the author of Hebrews is painting. In the Old Testament, angels prophets spoke to us they gave us god's word they gave us what he said those who disobeyed god's word in the old testament before christ were judged for that they received their just punishment for that if that is true then on this side of the covenant after all of the prophecies of the old testament has been fulfilled after jesus has come and lived a sinless life died on the cross for our sins risen from the grave, if they were so responsible for drifting, how much more will we be responsible for what we've heard? Don't neglect your salvation. You know the teachers that you had in school who, who kind of adamantly laid down some laws at the beginning of the semester and then maybe you kind of ask around the people who had had them before and then you realized, you know, the bark. It's worse than the bite, that kind of thing. There's going to be some slide here. Don't ever make the mistake that thinking because God is a loving God because that He is not a just God. Don't only read part of the Bible. Don't make the mistake when it comes to Jesus in light of all that He's done. To ignore Christ is unbelievably tragic. I want to ask you today, are there specific... Areas in your life where you're drifting from God. There are things in the Christian life that we call disciplines. That sounds like such a dry word, but that's one word that you could use. Bible reading and meditation. Intentionally setting aside time and praying. Singing praises to God. Other disciplines. These aren't check-off boxes for being a good Christian. You remember... I remember when we were growing up, we used to have the envelope that had the little check marks on it where you check the boxes, right? I can check those boxes. I'm a good Christian. That's not how it works. These disciplines are designed, are made for us, are commanded in Scripture so that we will pay closer attention to such a great salvation that God has given us. They're means for helping us to pay closer attention, to move toward Christ. And so when we ask sometimes here, do you you look more like Christ? Do you look more like Christ than you did a year ago? That's not a question that's designed to be a guilt trip for you. Not designed to say, well, if you don't, you need to try harder. The thing is, the reason you're not more like Christ if you're not, you're not growing in Christ if you're not, is because you're drifting, you're fading. You're not. Paying closer attention, moving toward Christ. So, what does that look like? Here, here's what it looks like. Now, I would say this particularly to students. And Landon references earlier. There are, especially you students who are graduating. You're about to step out from under an umbrella where many of the decisions that might help you to pay closer attention to Christ, many of those decisions are going to be made not by others now. They're going to be made by you. You need to let that soak in. What kind of decisions are you going to make? And are you packing away habits? Are you already doing things that cause you not to pay attention to this great Christ and how he wants to mold your life? Are you doing that? I would I would tell you today i would I would I would urge you to repent during this time of response and and unpack and re-engage with God in ways that you've disengaged with him this is a guard against drifting it's not it's not a question designed to bring guilt what can you do to to pay closer attention to Christ and to move toward him or maybe today you have heard this and you have said i, I I'm not sure if I know Christ I'm not sure if I know this Jesus repent turn to Christ move toward him he's done everything that needed to be accomplished for you to have a relationship with him so repent and turn to him let's pray Father it is such a great salvation that you've given us I've never come to this text. There are probably many people in this room like me. I've never come to reading this passage where I'm not convicted about ways that I am drifting away from you. Things that I am using that have no purpose for glorifying God. Things that I am distracted by in this world. Help me today. And help us all today to set those things aside. Help us all to realize we cannot live our Christian lives in neutral. We cannot have a relationship with you and it be in one place. We're either going to be pushing toward you, wanting more of you, realizing that my knowledge of you and my salvation, as great as it is, can be greater can be fuller and you can use that in my life and in the lives of others to glorify yourself and so would you make our hearts known to us today would you help us to see our hearts and ourselves as you see us and would you help us to to repent where we need to repent God Lord, for these students especially today as they're in this transitional time of life, no message that they could hear could be greater than this. Pay more attention. Don't drift from your salvation. And so I pray that they would do that and they never attempt to walk alone. They would seek out others that they know, love Christ and will look them in the eye and look at your word and tell them the truth. You'll receive glory from that. Lord, you're a good God. You've conquered death. You've conquered the devil. You've conquered our sin of your own will. And we praise you for that today. May we live our lives celebrating the glory, what you've done. In the name of Jesus.